The Stanford Prison Experiment is one of the very few subjects we've tackled that I've actually studied a bit before. I remember learning about it during an experimental psychology class at Gonzaga University back around 1998. I was probably wearing some kind of Smashing Pumpkins or Radiohead t-shirt back then. Definitely was rocking a few earrings in each ear. My hair may or may not have been bleached. Anyway, I remember my professor explaining that the study shed light on a question that I had been thinking about in one of my other classes, a history class on the Holocaust. How could they do it? How could Germans do to the Jewish people, to the Romani, to homosexuals, uh, to political objectors, what they did? How could they treat them so savagely, kill innocent people that way? Well, in addition to a lot of other factors, part of their ability to dehumanize their prisoners may have been the psychology of conforming to the expectation to their role of the captor. Turns out when you give someone the ability to punish others, when you put someone in charge of others and give them the ability to reward or punish others, they tend to behave in some very interesting ways and often in some not so great ways. And we know a lot of this now because of the study we're talking about today. Philip Zimbardo and the others who conducted this now famous experiment in 1971 found that people behaved in altogether startling ways, ways that are no longer as surprising thanks to what we know now. Strange days in 1971 explored today on Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Time Suckers. I'm Dan Cummins, and you are listening to Time Suck. So thank you. Love the way you're living your life right now. Today's Time Suck is brought to you by the My West Coast Buds podcast, hosted by comic, time sucker, weed wizard, Joe DeMeo. My West Coast Buds is an inside baseball look at cannabis, coffee, comedy, and spirits, all of Joe's favorite vices. It's a funny conversation where you learn a lot about the explosive new industry of legal marijuana. This week's episode also released today, and their week's episode features Amanda Arnold and Tori Ward talking about what it takes to put on a comedy festival. They put on the Undertow Comedy Festival in Lincoln City, Oregon. They give tips to comedians on what common mistakes are seen in submission videos. All of this on my West Coast Buds. So in addition to cannabis, coffee, comedy, spirits, you get an inside look at all sorts of other interesting industries and topics like comedy festivals. So listen and subscribe to my West Coast Buds on iTunes, SoundCloud, all sorts of other podcast players, including, of course, www.mywestcoastbuds.com. Link in today's episode description. You can also find them in the sponsor section of the Time Suck app. Just push their button. Got a sweet little button on there. And if you're looking to get into the cannabis industry yourself, just hit Joe up. He works as a cannabis consultant in Portland, Oregon, and will give you 50% off your first hour of cannabis consultation for being a time sucker. Email him at mywestcoastbuds at gmail.com. Mention the suck to get that huge discount. Email also in the episode description. All right, it's going to be a really fun show today. We're getting into this shit quick, right after a couple uh, quick announcements. Those black Fifth generation, Danger Brain, 251% elderly mole skin t-shirts. Back in stock in all sizes now. Sorry for the long wait on that. Old moles, man, starved and beaten with hammers to death to put that sweet, soft fear into each and every shirt. Just, just have it on your body. Oh, bringing this year's uh, Flat Earth Tour to the South at the end of this week. Comedy Zone in Charlotte on Sunday, April 8th. Punchline in Atlanta on Monday the 9th. Uh, Alabama the 10th and the 11th, Stardome in Birmingham uh, the 10th, Stand Up uh, Live in Huntsville on the 11th, Zanies in Nashville on the 12th, Secret Group in Houston, Houston, Texas on the 13th, uh, Texas Theater in Dallas on the 14th, and the Improv in San Antonio on Sunday the 15th. Salt Lake City 
San Francisco, Sacramento, Phoenix up next. Live Time Suck podcast in Spokane, Washington, May 6th. Live podcast. Only one I'll be doing until, until Orlando late in the summer. So get your ass there, right? Come to the Time Suck. Come to the Flat Earth Tour. Get a, get a Flat Earth Tour t-shirt that you can only get uh, at the shows. More tour dates at dancummins.tv. Time Suck 81, Stanford, Stanford Prison Experiment right now. Okay, so I feel like the best thing to lay out first is a quick summary of the Stanford Prison Experiment before we dive into the details, or at least, you know, uh, what it was intended to be, a little summary of that. 1971, uh, Stanford psychology professor Philip Zimbardo, funded by the U.S. Office of Naval Research, led an investigation into the causes of difficulties between guards and prisoners in the U.S. Navy and and the U.S. Marine Corps. Zimbardo and his team aimed to test the hypothesis that the inherent personality traits of prisoners and guards uh, you know, that that's the chief cause of abusive behavior in prison. Basically, people drawn to power and also those drawn by the desire to abuse their power are the types of people who want to be prison guards, you know, for example, and those who inherently despise the powers that be and don't want to be told what to do, i.e. Uh, follow the law, end up breaking laws and becoming prisoners. And it would make sense, that, you know, those two personality types would naturally then clash. And it made sense that this experiment was done on the campus of Stanford University uh, you know, just south of San Francisco, Palo Alto, 1971, you know, the Vietnam War was winding down. The Bay Area in general had been un- undergoing a, a huge counterculture revolution for years now. Free love, fuck the man, turn on, tune in, drop out. That's one of the models of the counterculture, a phrase popularized uh, by LSD guru and hippie shaman, uh, Timothy Leary in 1966. In 1967, Leary had uh, spoke at the human being, at the human being. A gathering of 30,000 dirty hippies in Golden Gate Park, 35 miles from Stanford's campus. Uh, It was 35 miles between Stanford and the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood of San Francisco as well, that little district. The heart, the beating heart, the tie-dyed beating heart of the hippie movement. The Grateful Dead are actually from Palo Alto, formed there in 65. I mean, this was the place to do some cutting-edge social experiments about the man. Let's find out what's going on with the man. Stanford campus had been ripe with protests, anti-war movements, that had put students directly into conflict with local police. Tensions were running high between the Palo Alto Police Department and the students. Tensions were at, were at their highest after demonstrations occurred on April 29th and April 30th, 1970, following news of the U.S. invasion in Cambodia. Police from as far away as San Francisco had been summoned. Rocks had been thrown. Tear gas was first used on the campus during those two nights. Knights University President Pitzer described as tragic. Approximately 65 people, many of whom were police officers, were hurt. Partly due to all the tension, a new chief of police, Captain James Jercher, takes over in February 1972. Zimbardo uh, formed a relationship with the chief, talks, uh, talks about him as you know, psychology of imprisonment class. Zimbardo wants to figure out how to bridge the gap between the students and the authorities, see if they can reduce the tension. And Zimbardo and, uh, and, and Zercher agree it'd be interesting to study how men become you know, uh, socialized into the role of police officers and what, they went, uh, and what went into transforming a rookie into a good cop. However, he did not have the money to do like that big of a project, but um, he did have a grant through the U.S. Office of of Naval Research to study antisocial behavior that could cover the study of what went into the making of a prison guard. Originally, the experiment was going to create a prison in which rookie cops and college students would be both mock guards and mock prisoners. In addition to whatever Zimbardo might learn, the chief felt it would be a good personal training experience for some of his men, so he agreed to assign several of his rookies. Uh, to be in this mock prison experience. However, shortly after agreeing to supply the officers uh, for the experiment, the chief reneged, uh, saying he couldn't lose his men for two weeks. 
Yeah, yeah, I bet he uh, did. I bet he uh, really had to originally <laughs> uh, rethink that that original decision. And uh, you know, I bet, I bet, I bet whoever was his, his superior, uh, you know, wasn't very happy when he found out about it. You, you're going to do what with your officers, Zercher? You want to be chief, and you want you're going to do what? You're going to pay pay them with taxpayer money to pretend to be police officers, dick around some college kids. Uh, it, actually, uh, Mr. Mayor, uh, only some of them are going to pretend to be cops. Uh, some of them will pretend to be prisoners. Do you have a goddamn stroke, Zerker? You're going to do what? You're, you're going to pay real police officers to be pretend prisoners. Do you, do you feel like paying your bills with pretend money next week when you're fucking fired for being the dumbest goddamn wannabe police chief in the history of the city? Uh, uh, you know, Mr. Mayor, now that I've, I've heard how it sounds to everyone other than Professor Zimbardo, uh, it, it does seem like a bad idea. I'm going to go ahead and call it off. I'll just, I'll just show myself out. Yeah, because, you know, again, he was, he was going to be the police chief the, the next year. Uh, probably realized this was not the best decision to make. So when Zimbardo was told he could not use officers, he chose to go ahead with student volunteers instead, just for, for every role. And who was Zimbardo? Who was his character? At the time, he was two years away from being a homeless drifter. Zimbardo had suffered a psychotic break in 1965 and spent several years basically wandering through the southwest and northern Mexico from 65 until 68 when he joined up with the dead. Grateful Dead sold tie-dye t-shirts for the band on tour until 1970 when Stanford hired him, even though he didn't even have a high school uh, education. He just seemed fucking cool, man. Uh, they said, quote, he seemed fucking cool, and we like his aura. Uh, no, they weren't, they weren't quite that crazy on campus in, in the Bay Area in 71. Uh, Stanford uh, was and is arguably the most prestigious academic institution on the West Coast. When it comes to experimental tech, social sciences, uh, they're arguably one of the most important academic institutions in the world. I've cited a ton of Stanford studies over the course of the suck. And Zimbardo would go on to become one of America's most respected and influential psychologists. But in 1971, he wasn't widely known. Uh, He was born March 23rd, 1933, New York City. He attended Brooklyn College, where he earned a BA in 1954, triple majoring in psychology, sociology, and anthropology. So, you know, huge nerd. (laughs) What a fucking nerd. Bet he didn't even hit a beer bong. I bet he never whipped his dick out in front of his roommate to, to piss him off, but, but he never came home reeking of gin and sex. So, you know, after completely wasting his youth trying to make something of himself, uh, he went on to earn his MA in 1955, his PhD in 1959 from Yale University, both in psychology. And then Dr. Uh, Smarty McNerddork taught briefly at Yale before becoming a psychology professor at New York University, where he taught until 1967. So he's a smart guy. After a year of teaching at Columbia University, the 35-year-old rising academic star became a faculty member at Stanford in 68. Yeah, whatever. Good for him. I probably could have done the same thing, you know. I I once had a professor tell me that she thought I might be able to get into a grad school, into a grad school, just into one of them somehow. So, you know, whatever. Uh, When uh, Zimbardo couldn't work with local cops, he placed an ad in the Palo Alto Times in the Stanford Daily that read, Male college students needed for psychological study of prison life. $15 per day for one to two weeks beginning August 14th. Experiment will accurately represent incarceration, especially sodomy. Heavy on the sodomy. Volunteers willing to sign up must sign a consent form and not a liability waiver regarding sodomy. And some sodomizing is part of the application process. And by some, more like a lot of sodomizing. Uh, no, the ad didn't mention sodomy. Uh, it, ended, it ended with, uh, for further information and applications, come to room 248, Jordan Hall, Stanford U. <laughs> I, wish it, I wish it said the rest of that stuff just for the ridiculousness of it. Can you imagine? Just, man, I don't know. I, I need the extra cash, but 
Sounds like a lot of butt fucking going on in this study. I don't get it. More than 70 dudes applied for the study. Craig Haney, young grad student of Zimbardo's. Kurt Banks, a research assistant, oversaw diagnostic interviews, personality tests to weed out applicants with psychological problems, medical disabilities, a history of crime or drug abuse. Zimbardo uh, ended up with 24 students from middle-class homes from the U.S. and Canada who were all living on or near the Stanford campus. The boys all flipped a coin, were randomly assigned to be prisoner or guard prior to the start of the experiment. There would be nine prisoners. There would be nine guards. They worked in eight-hour shifts. There would also be a few alternates in case someone needed to drop out for whatever reason. Uh, Originally, every single student said they would prefer to be a prisoner and not a guard. And that is hilarious to me. Not, Not me, man. Oh, no, thank you. I would way rather be a guard. Are you kidding me? Ah, hmm, be told uh, what to do by some asshole or get to tell others what to do and maybe be the asshole. I'm, uh, I'm going full asshole with that decision. Speaking of sodomy, uh, why didn't they all want to be prisoners? Uh, well, basically because they were a bunch of fucking hippies. The reason all of these students preferred being in the prisoner role is that they might at some time become a prisoner. This is what they were thinking. For draft evasion, DUI charges, for example, or arrested in some protest for civil rights or against the war. Most of them said they could never imagine ever being a prison guard. They didn't go to college in the hope of becoming a prison guard. Man, Bay Area, gotta love it. Uh, I'm guessing that had that study been conducted in the Midwest or in Idaho, where I live, uh, way less people signing up to be prisoners or hoping to be prisoners. Just uh, more of a vibe of, I'll be guard, I'll be guard. Can I hit them? Can I hit them when they act up? Please let me hit them, please. Tell me I can hit the prisoners. Uh, The basement of Jordan Hall, the building that housed the Department of Psychology, is transformed into a fake prison. It's set up in one long corridor in the basement, and uh, both ends boarded up, creating a yard. This is where the prisoners would walk, eat, exercise. Cells were made by removing doors off of laboratory rooms, replacing them with steel bars and cell numbers. I love that they went all out on this. How much fun would it be to put people in pretend prison? I want to put my kids in pretend prison right now. Uh, I feel like if I did that, my daughter Monroe would for sure start a prison riot. My son Kyler, uh, he'd probably get shanked in the yard. He'd probably get shanked by Monroe. Definitely by Monroe. Uh, the cells had uh, no furniture other than cots, except cell three, which had a faucet that had been turned off. There was no windows, only indirect neon lighting. There were fire extinguishers, which were required by the university. The bathroom was the outside of the corridor. Uh, prisoners only would only be allowed to go there blindfolded, <laughs> so they would not know that they had left the prison. Finally, there was one small closet near the end of the hall. It was about two feet wide, two feet deep, but tall enough that a man could stand there. And this would be known as the hole. Jesus Christ. And this is where bad prisoners would be sent for solitary confinement. All of these spaces were bugged for recording. They would be monitored by Zimbardo, Haney, and Banks from another room. And uh, on Friday, August 13th, 1971, too bad they didn't have video of all of it. They had audio for all of it, but video just for some. Uh, on Friday, August 13th, 1971, the day before the experiment officially begins, those selected uh, to be guards are brought in for an orientation. They're not given any real training or instructions on how to act. Zimbardo and his crew want to witness how they interpret having power for themselves. They're informed that the main thing is for them to maintain law and order. No violence against prisoners and not and, and don't allow any escapes. Uh, and, of course, there, there is the sodomy uh, thing. They're, they're, they are instructed to sodomize prisoners and encourage prisoners to sodomize each other. And strangely, Zimbardo instructed them to also sodomize themselves with their own penises. That's right. Yep. They were instructed to perform the most complicated, most difficult type of sodomy known to mankind, and that's self-penis sodomy. Uh, Sorry, I blacked out for about 10 seconds there. Last thing I remember saying was that the guards weren't allowed to let prisoners escape. Huh. Uh, Zimbardo then tells the nine guards and and David Yaffe, his research assistant slash warden, we cannot physically abuse or torture them. We can create boredom. We can create a sense of frustration. 
We can create fear in them to some degree. We can create a notion of the arbitrariness that, that governs their lives, which are totally controlled by us, by the system, by you, me, Yaffe. We'll have no privacy at all. There'll be, there'll, there'll be constant surveillance, nothing to do. Uh, they do will go unobserved. They will have no freedom of action. They will be able to do nothing and say nothing that we don't permit. We're going to take away their individuality in various ways. They're going to be wearing uniforms, and at no time will anybody call them by name. They will have numbers and be called only by their numbers. In general, what all this should create in them is a sense of powerlessness. We have total power in this situation. They have none. The research question is, what will they do to try to gain power, to regain some degree of individuality, to gain some freedom, to gain some privacy? Will the prisoners essentially work against us to regain some of what they now have as they freely move outside the prison? All right. So we have really smart people playing this uh, big, silly game that could lead to an incredible amount of insight into the human psyche. How much fun would it be to participate or watch this? I remember when I was reading about this study and others like it in college thinking, that is what I want to do. I want to get paid to fuck with people. And now I guess in a way I get to. I mean, I get to fuck with you guys a little each week here on Time Suck. You guys know how much nonsense I throw your way. So, you know, thanks for letting me mess with you sometimes and live in my dream. Uh, But while I do it for my own amusement, Zimbardo did it in the name of intellectual curiosity. Uh, He wanted to learn how the roles of both authority authority and prisoner affected individuals. Did they conform to some expectation of what they imagined a prisoner or captor's role to be? Did they behave in expected ways, entirely unexpected ways? I'll give you a hint. Uh, It's the last one. Shit got out of hand and quick. Uh, I'll also be uh, reading a lot from Zimbardo's actual uh, firsthand written descriptions of this experiment in the timeline, uh, which is fantastic. Usually, you know, when, you, when you're constructing these episodes, I have to cross-reference, fact-check amongst various sources. There's, there's often no firsthand accounts into the info I'm looking for, just speculation and hearsay. Not with this suck, man. This experiment was thoroughly documented and recorded. So let's get into that documentation with this week's Time Suck Timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. Day one, Saturday, August 14th, 1971, 9.55 a.m. An officer from the Palo Alto Police Force goes to arrest the volunteers. They don't know they're going to be arrested. They weren't given a heads up. I love this so much. Too bad hidden camera footage of these captures doesn't exist. Man, the prisoner volunteers had only been told in the most vague terms what their role in the experiment was going to be. The arresting, the arresting officers were told, just go about doing your duty as if it were a real arrest. Ignore any of their questions or protests. <laughs> I feel like this can't be legal. Actual police cars went to gather the volunteers with sirens blaring, lights blazing. They were handcuffed, blindfolded, brought to Stanford County Jail one at a time. And what they called Stanford County Jail. Uh, Man, I, fucking commitment, man. I hope Zimbardo enjoyed this. I hope he was laughing his balls off when he heard about these hippie kids getting picked up by the fuzz. John Williams, you're under arrest. Come with me. Uh, what, what did I do? I'm not a liberty to say, but if you don't come with me, I'll have to uh, add resistant arrest to your charges. It's, Jesus, if I, I, just, I just want to talk to my lawyer. <laughs> oh, man, I, I hope these arresting officers really, you know, fucking had, had fun with these kids. Get the car, dirtbag. Yeah, tell it to your lawyer. Oh, oh man. And, and, and uh... <laughs> God, you know, it just reminds me of a thing I did back in uh, 2011. You know, like, like if you're wondering, like, well, why would these kids, like, like they knew they hadn't done anything wrong. Why, why would they let just these cops just take them out of their daily lives, you know, with, with no, like, no warrant, they hadn't done anything. Like, uh, well, because people like, like to a real authority figure like that, they generally just bow down. They generally just do what the, the person tells them to do. And I know this firsthand because I did something even crazier uh, back in 2011, and I was amazed what I got away with. Back in 2011... I partnered up with a production company to try and sell a show concept we were calling Clinical Anarchy. 
It had an edutainment angle, and the premise was to retest psychological experiments uh, from the past and present in a funny kind of hidden camera way, find out if we could verify the findings from you know these old studies. I picked a Stanley Milgram experiment on obedience for a little five-minute presentation video we shot. Uh, Milgram was a noted Yale psychology professor and researcher who had done an experiment in 1961 that Zimbardo was actually very familiar with. He was trying to add to that research, basically. And in 61, Milgram uh, wanted to test how far people would go regarding obeying an instruction if it involved harming another person. He wanted to know like, how easily ordinary people could be influenced into committing atrocities, uh, for example, you know, to shed light on, on what the Germans did in World War II. Quick summary of his test was that you were put in a room with the researcher, working under the assumption that you're helping somebody else improve their memory by giving them a jolt of electricity every time they answer a question wrong. So you're sitting in a room, like a laboratory room, researcher with a, a or somebody who looks like a researcher is actually just like a volunteer or, or a paid volunteer basically with like a lab coat and a clipboard and then and then you can hear somebody uh through through these headphones in an, who's supposedly in another room and you you know asking them questions you have the answers in your hand and if they get them wrong you're supposed to push a little button uh that coordinates with this machine in front of you that that gives them a little bit of juice and you can see like there's a there's a, actually a series of buttons that are supposed to be like how much, you know, how, how badly you're shocking them. It started like 15 volts, which would be, uh, said slight shock. And it went to, uh, that like 375 volts was rated danger, severe shock. And then it went all the way past that to 450 volts, which you were led to believe, you know, could be a, a lethal amount. It was set to make you at least think that that could be a lethal amount. And, um, and basically as they got more questions wrong, you're supposed to shock them with more and more voltage. And then when people would hesitate, the researcher would just, you know, just peer pressure you or pressure you under this authority way of just being like, continue, continue. We must continue the experiment. Continue. They must be punished or whatever. You know, he'd say these kind of words and people would hesitate, but then they'd be like, okay. And then they would shock him. 65% of the participants in this study eventually gave the fake memory student, they were listening to scream in another room when they were being shocked, the full 450 volts. With that, with that researcher sitting next to them. And as the voltage got higher, the, the actor in the other room, who was not getting shocked, uh, would just, you know, scream louder and louder, you know, uh, until it was like excruciating, you know, like crazy screams. And then as you went higher than that, it sounded like they were dying. And these people, <laughs> for a fucking memory test, would still keep shocking them because some dude in a lab coat who had no authority over their life was just like, we must continue. We must continue the experiment. So they knew what they were doing was wrong. They knew they might be killing somebody. But they didn't want it to, to defy the commands of the researcher. They didn't want to you know, upset the perceived authority figure in the room. They want to let him down. They want to break the rules. And, you know, that just showed uh, how humans in, in the right situation can just, you know, go to that place of like, oh, I just got to follow orders and just do horrible fucking things. And the show I was pitching, uh, it didn't end up getting picked up. Uh, we, we, we came close with the now defunct Spike TV, that network that morphed into Paramount. But so much fun. This is what I did. I wanted to see if I could verify Milgram's findings. By getting people uh, to submit to the perception of my authority. Like would people, would random strangers out in public do things that they knew were stupid, things that made them look foolish, made no sense, just because I was dressed up like a security guard and I told them to do it. So I, I, went, I dressed up like a security guard. I went to a costume shop in Santa Monica. I bought a security guard costume. I'm sure this is fucking illegal what I did. Uh, I remember the production company made us shoot it ourselves because they were worried about it. <laughs> getting in trouble, but they also thought it was a great idea. Uh Bought some black security guard, looked at sneakers, grew a little mustache specifically for the taping, had a walkie-talkie thing on my shoulder that a buddy and filmmaker Mike Newman would – he would mumble security-like things into. See, as I'm walking around, you could like hear my little shoulder walkie-talkie. We got a 774. We got a 764. Progress. Just like whatever. 
And uh, <laughs> and then I had a belt. I had a fucking belt full of security guard-looking tools, you know, handcuffs, big metal flashlight, mace spray, little utility pocket knife thingy. And then I just uh, I snuck around Santa Monica. It's the middle of the day, you know, and also we just pop out of the car and I would just, you know, I had a lapel mic on. My buddy Mike would hide and film from a distance and I just fucking boss people around. And I was blown away. The people listened to me. It was fucking crazy. Like only one woman told me to beat it. One woman told me, she's like, what are you doing? You're not a real cop. And, uh, and she told me to fuck off at one point because I, I was trying to tell her, this is how ridiculous I was being. She was, she was uh, at the corner getting ready to cross the street. She's talking on her cell phone. As she started to cross the street, I told her this was a no walk and talk zone. I was like, ma'am, this is a no walk and talk zone. There's no talking on your cell phone uh, in this uh, in this part of Santa Monica when you're crossing the street. Ma'am, cl- hang up your phone. No walk and talk zone. <laughs> she looked at me like I was crazy. Rightfully so. Yeah, and ended up telling me to fuck off. But only one, only one who defied me. Uh, 10, 15 other people that I approached just followed my fucking commands. I, and, and they were ridiculous. I went up to one dude at this park on the corner of 7th and Wilshire in Santa Monica. And he was laying down on the grass just reading a book in a park. I told him if he wanted to keep reading his book, he would have to do it on the other side of the sidewalk. He was sitting in one of the um, city's new, uh, new no-reading zones. I told him he was in a no-reading zone. I told him that we had a lot of people complaining about other people reading too many books in the park. It was a real nuisance. And he looked at me like I was insane. But then I just – I held character, and I would just say something. I would, I would just default to like, hey, man, I, I know. I know. No, I don't agree with it either. It's ordinance 1658. It just passed. doesn't make sense to me, but uh, I got to do my job. You know, I just get paid to – do what they tell me. If you, if you don't stop, I, I got to write you up. I got to write you. And then he shook his head, just muttered something about this is bullshit. But then got up and went to the other side of the sidewalk, started reading again. I, I got, <laughs> it was so crazy. I got one guy to wait five minutes to play his drum. Like he was, just, he's just, just some nice dude playing his drum in the park, like a little handheld, what are you, bongo or whatever. And uh, I walk up to him. And I was like, hey, man, sorry, man. This is no drum zone. Between two and four, ordinance 7854. I would always just cite an ordinance number. And I would always act like, huh, I don't, I don't, I don't know why they have these laws. And I'm like, it was like 3:55 p.m. And I was like, hey man, you can play again in five minutes. I, I know it's crazy, but I gotta, I gotta get you to stop beating on your drum. Uh, I gotta, I gotta write you up. I would always go to that place. Of, I, I gotta write you up. Uh, I, I got one. I got people to stop riding their bikes. I remember running over to one guy. He was riding his bike. I was like, whoa, 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 sir, 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 sir. Ah, off the bike, off the bike. No, 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 no. This is uh, this is a no bike zone. This is a no bike zone on Saturdays. Uh-uh, uh-uh. And he just, he apologized. He hopped off his bike. He's like, oh, God, sorry, I didn't know. I'm like, yeah, it's ordinance, you know, 4672. These uh, passed uh, last week's city council meeting. And uh, the craziest thing I did, I got a school crossing guard to perform a random field sobriety test. I walked up to, <laughs> to this crossing guard who turned out was an off-duty cop. That's when I, That was the most nervous I also got. Because he started to question me. He's like, what? He's like, I never heard of this. And I was like, yeah, nah, you know, the city, there was a, apparently there was a guy last week in uh, Venice uh, he was drunk and, you know, we don't want to get lawsuits. And so, you know, they, they hired this agency and that agency hired me. I, it'll just take, take, take a minute. Got a dad to do a random, you know, sobriety test on you. And I had him like touch his nose with his fingers and I do, do the fucking one foot in front of the other, say the alphabet backwards. Uh, and they fucking did it. I, and it's just, I found it hilarious and terrifying how they, they would just slightly pause and then just bend to the will of assumed authority. So what would Zimbardo's student prisoners and student prison guards do in a much more organized study? What findings would he uncover? So let's dive back in. Let's dive back in and find out. So, okay, it's Saturday morning. The fake prisoners have just been arrested. Once brought back to the fake prison, the fake guards order the fake prisoners to strip and remain standing naked with their arms outstretched against the wall and legs, uh, or had their legs spread apart. Uh, <laughs> so that's crazy. 
You know, uh, they were never told to make like to strip these prisoners. That was never like part of their uh, what they had to do. They just assumed that's what happened when you go into a real jail. And so we should do this to these uh, volunteers before given a uniform. Each prisoner sprayed with powder alleged to be a delouser to rid him of lice that might be brought in to contaminate the jail without uh, staff encouragement. Some guards begin to make fun of the prisoner genitals. They're making fun of one dude for having a small ween. Seriously, remarking on his penis size. Uh, laughing at some other dudes unevenly hanging testicles. Jesus Christ. They've been fake prison guards for less than a fucking few hours, and they're already just assholes making fun of some guy's dick. Unbelievable. That, that is no good. What is big deal with strange penis? What, why make source of shame? No good come from that. Trust Chikatilo. No good come from a cock of shame. Uh, did Chikatilo actually just give us positive, solid advice? Uh, anyway, still blindfolded, the prisoners given their uniforms, they each receive a brown uh, muslin smock with their prisoner ID numbers on the front and the back. The researchers can't force the volunteers to shave their heads uh, the way they would in a real prison. So they're they're each given a nylon stocking that has to be worn over their hair at all times. Zimbardo felt that covering the head is also a method uh, of erasing one of the markers of individuality. It promotes greater anonymity amongst uh, the prisoner cast. Next, each prisoner uh, dons a pair of rubber clogs. A locked chain is attached to an ankle. Constant reminder of imprisonment. Even when asleep, the prisoner will be reminded of his status when the chain hits his foot as he turns in his sleep. The prisoners are allowed no underwear. <laughs> that, that wasn't like part of what they had to do either, but they were like, nah, man, no underwear. So that w- when they would bend over, their, their junk would fucking be exposed. Their butt would hang out. Jeez. They're just constantly being humiliated and degraded. Guards are given billy clubs, mirrored sunglasses to look the part. Zimbardo got that idea uh, from Cool Hand Luke which is a movie I love, by the way. Remember that asshole war? Have you ever seen that movie? Oh, man. So if you haven't, you should. What a classic Paul Newman movie. What we have here is a failure to communicate. Just the sadistic warden in that movie. Oh. Prisoners are lined up uh, against a wall, and uh, guard Arnett gives them a list of rules. They must memorize the rules. The rules are, one, prisoners must remain silent during rest periods, after lights out, during meals, and whenever they are outside the prison yard. Two, Prisoners must eat at mealtimes and only at mealtimes. Three, prisoners must participate in all prison activities. Four, prisoners must keep their cell clean at all times. Beds must be made and personal effects must be neat and orderly. Floors must be spotless. Five, prisoners must not move, tamper with, deface, or damage walls, ceilings, windows, doors, or prison property. Six, prisoners must never operate cell lighting. Seven, prisoners must address each other by number only. Eight, prisoners must always address the guards as Mr. Correctional Officer and the warden as Mr. Chief Correctional Officer. Nine, prisoners must never refer to their condition as an experiment or simulation. They are imprisoned until paroled. Ten, prisoners will be allowed five minutes in the laboratory. No prisoner will be allowed to return to the lavatory within one hour after a scheduled lavatory period. Lavatory visitations are controlled by the guards. 11. Smoking is a privilege. Smoking will be allowed after meals or at the discretion of the guard. Prisoners must never smoke in the cells. Abuse of the smoking privilege will result in permanent revocation of the smoking privilege. Uh, Number 12. Mail is a privilege. All mail flowing in and out of the prison will be inspected and censored. Number 13, masturbation is mandatory. All prisoners must masturbate twice a day to prevent buildup of sexual tension. Uh, uh, 14, visitors are a privilege. Prisoners who are allowed a visitor must meet him or her 
at the door to the yard. They will be supervised by a guard, and the guard may terminate the visit at his discretion. 15, all prisoners in each cell will stand whenever the warden, the prison superintendent, or any visitors arrive on the premise. Uh, Prisoners will wait on orders to be seated or to resume activities. Number 16, prisoners must obey all orders issued by guards at all times. A guard's order supersedes any written order. Warden's order supersedes both the guard's orders and the written rules. Orders of the superintendent of the prison are supreme. Uh, Number 17, prisoners must report report all rule violations to the guards. 18, failure to obey any of the above rules may result in punishment. 19, rule number 13, the masturbation rule was made up by me a few moments ago, never part of the experiment. After they are given these rules, the fake prisoners are introduced to counts. I hope some of you were like hung up on that for the last like seven rules. Like, fuck, they had to jerk off? Like they had to? Twice a day? Huh? I guess that does reduce tension. Uh, after the given rules, the fake prisoners are introduced to counts. Uh, the prisoners must memorize their numbers as the will. Uh, they will be used in a roll call count, like failure to achieve the count in a clean and quick way results in punishment. Uh, initially, the purpose of the counts, as in all prisons, is an administrative necessity to ensure that all prisoners are present and accounted for. That none have escaped, are still uh, in his cell sick or need attention. Secondary purpose of the counts is for prisoners to familiarize themselves with their new numbered identity. Uh, Zimbardo wanted them to begin thinking of themselves and the, and the others as prisoners with numbers, not people with names. First count was deemed too slow. The prisoners were forced to do 10 push-ups as punishment. And they're randomly assigned cells. You know, cell one was prisoner 3401, 5704, 7258, you know, and, and so on. Arnett, uh, the oldest volunteer and graduate student of sociology, uh, takes early control. He singles out prisoners who he thinks will be troublemakers. And uh, he's going to make them acceptable. He latches on to prisoners in 2093. Takes an instant disliking to him. Uh, already, man, tension between the, <laughs> the fake prisoners and the fake prison guards. It's been, again, less than one day. Night shift guards come in at 6 p.m. They're equipped with whistles, silver reflective sunglasses. What we have here is a failure to communicate. Handcuffs, billy clubs. Uh, first meal of the day served at 7 p.m. It's a simple one, offered cafeteria style on a table set out in the yard. There's room for only six inmates at the table, so when they finish, the remaining three get to come and eat what's left. Man, man, right off, prisoner 8612 tries to talk the others into going uh, on a sit-down strike to protest unacceptable prison conditions. Ah, fucking Bay Area. Jesus Christ, you've been in, you've been in prison less than a day. You're staging a protest? After, uh, been in fake prison less than a day. After dinner, the prisoners are put in, into their cells, told to be silent. Prisoner 819-8612 talk loudly but are not punished. 5704 is a smoker. Starting to get antsy from lack of nicotine. He's told that smoking is a privilege. He hasn't earned it yet. Warden Yaffe uh, uh, has his first official task in telling the prisoners that there will be visiting nights. Uh, Any prisoner uh, who has friends or relatives in the vicinity should write to them about coming to visit. He describes the letter writing procedures and gives each one who asks for it a pen, Stanford County Jail stationery, and a stamped envelope. Man, they've really went all out. Uh, The visiting nights quickly become a tool in which the guards use to control the prisoners. Power struggle begins between two of the fake guards. One of them, Hellman, asserts his dominance by going after Prison 819. He turns on him for laughing, pushing him down with his billy club and yelling in his face. So they were told not to get physical, uh, physical on day one. He commands 819 to do 20 push-ups as punishment. The guards are starting to take pleasure in the authority they have over the prisoners. And this is fucking day one. Day one. They're pushing people down with billy clubs. You know, they're mocking them, mocking their fucking penises, strip searching them making them wear nylon head coverings in places shaving their heads. Well, ah, time for another count. Uh, Hellman insists that they can't look at their numbers 
when they count, since by now they should have memorized them. And if any of the prisoners uh, gets their number wrong, uh, they're going to be punished. Everyone's going to be doing push-ups again. Dozen push-ups for everyone. Still uh, uh, competing with Landry for dominance in the guard's pecking order, Hellman becomes even more arbitrary with his punishments. He's really getting into this. This guy sounds like a real, real uh, incredible person. He goes, he goes, I don't like the way you count when you're going down. I want you to count when you're going up. Do 10 more push-ups for me. So they're just fucking making up rules as they go along. Guard burden becomes Hellman's number two. So this weird hierarchy starts developing amongst the fake guards. He eggs Hellman on, supports him. After the counts, Hellman yells out to the prisoners, All right, gentlemen, did you enjoy our counts? Somebody yells, No, sir. And he goes, Who said that? Prisoner 8612 owns up to the remark, and he's put in the hole. <laughs> he's fucking put in the closet. Ah, before lights out at 10 p.m., sharp, uh, 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 10 p.m. sharp prisoners are allowed to their, uh, have their last toilet privilege of the night. To do so requires permission. One by one or two by two, they're blindfolded, led to the toilet. Right later, this this inefficient procedure of kind of like winding them past a noisy boiler room, uh, which confuses them about the the toilet's location, uh, is a little more streamlined, and all and all the prisoners, you know, uh, will have this you know a little bit more organized toilet kind of route, uh, which might include an elevator ride to confuse them further. I mean, they're really put a lot of thought into every angle of this. Some prisoners are are not able to urinate as they're too tense; they're not given more time. Kind of feels like Zimbardo is just fucking with him a bit here. Uh, not not sure uh, why the the prolonged, confusing trip to the bathroom is such a, such an important thing. It's just really trying to disorientate and intimidate him, I guess. I don't know. It kind of feels though like like Zimbardo, uh, kind of like the fake guards, is getting a little drunk with power already. Uh, after the prisoners are put to bed, the guards play cards and <laughs> and plan how they will wake up the prisoners for the next count. The next shift of guards comes in for like the two a.m. to ten a.m. shift. I just cracked up. I love that they're playing cards because that feels to me like. Like if you watched movies of old prison stuff and there's like the guards playing cards, you're like, oh, I guess that's what we do now. We're prison guards, so we got to play cards. Um, day two, it's only day two. Day two, Sunday, August 15th, 1971. Uh, early on day two, 2.30 a.m., the prisoners are awoken by shrieking whistles. So that's fun. They're woken up by guards yelling them, up and at them, up and at them. Wake up, get out here for count. Okay, sleeping beauties, time to learn how to count. Uh, count and his attendant push-ups, jumping jacks for failures continue on and on for nearly for nearly an hour. They're just fucking harass these guys, uh, making do jumping jacks and push-ups and redo the count. Finally, the prisoners are ordered back to sleep until Reveille. A few hours later, some prisoners report they're you know they're very dis, uh, dis- disoriented. They're they're feeling surprised, exhausted. They're angry. Some later admit they're they're considering quitting already at this point. <laughs> they fail perhaps less than twenty four hours. The whistles start again, uh, six a.m. One of the guards, Zero, smacks his club against his open palm, making that, you know, whop, whop, whop sound. The prisoner's forced to do more exercise for punishment. 819 starts to cry. Uh, he's put in the hole for disobedience. Oh, my God. Early on day two and already tears. Already tears. Uh, already there's this weird Lord of the Flies vibe happening. I This is so amusing to me. The prisoners start to talk about a, a hunger strike. They're so fucking dramatic. They're so dramatic. Day two. They're like, oh, we can't take this. We've got to put on a hunger strike, you guys. The morning shift guards come in, decide that the prisoners think the guards are too lax, uh, which encourages the prisoners to rebel. So they decide it's time to stiffen up. First, they, they institute a morning work period, which today will mean scrubbing down the walls and floors. Then in, the, in their first stroke of, of collective creative revenge, they, they take blankets off the prisoners' beds in cells one and two, carry them outside the building, drag, through, drag them through brush, drag their blankets through a bunch of underbrush until they're just covered with, with like little stickers, little twigs. You know, Burrs, Prisoner 5704 goes ballistic about that. I, yeah, I bet. Uh, the guards have achieved their desired effect. Man, man, shit has gotten tense on day two. 
incredible how quickly these guys have become sadistic. It does not speak well to human nature. And not to sound sexist, but I wonder if they would have been less cruel if there had been some, some, uh, some ladies around, some, some, some females, right? Like if this would have been a mixed gender experiment. I, I, it feels like we're witnessing just like way too much testosterone. We're just witnessing the worst of testosterone. Right, because there are absolutely gender differences when it comes to behavior. Like you can talk about environmental factors when it comes to men and violence, all you want, but hormones have a lot to do with aggression. Uh, I mean, that's scientifically proven. I, I did I did some testosterone therapy a few years ago myself, uh, mostly out of curiosity, and I stopped taking it once my testosterone levels were about five times higher than normal. Because while I liked my bench press, uh, that was suddenly at an NFL combine level, I did not like threatening to beat the fuck out of strangers in public over minor traffic infractions. I would get so angry. It, it felt like the hormones would just take over my brain. Like I just felt completely insane. And then like, like moments later, I'd be like, what the fuck was that about? Why was I so angry? Too much, tes- too much testosterone seems to be going on in this study. Uh, prisoner 819 finally let out of the hole. When asked if he liked his time in there, he responded with, oh, fuck you, Mr. Correctional Officer. So now, they're, now this is the first time you know, that they're using obscenities. They're getting pissed. 819-5704-7258 start a mini rebellion. They rip their numbers off their uniforms. They demand better living conditions. Again, this is day two. The guards retaliate by stripping them naked until they replace their numbers. So much nudity. So homoerotic, right? I mean, the guards seem to love taking these dudes' clothes off. Uh, Cell one barricade themselves in. (laughs) They refuse to come out until they're going to receive better treatment. The ringleader is 5704. Ah, he's a troublemaker. They push the beds against the door, turn off the lights, they cover the bars with their blankets, right? Again, again, I just, ah, day two and there's, a, and there's a prison, you know, fucking protest going on, a rebellion. Unable to get into the cell, the guards go into cell two and they take all their beds and bedding out in the, into the yard. 819 is screaming wildly, just, no, 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 this is an experiment. Leave me alone. Shit, let go of me, fucker. You're not going to take our fucking beds. It's a fucking simulation. It's a fucking simulated experiment. It's no prison. Fuck Dr. Zimbardo. That's an exact quote. That is that is a documented quote from 8612. Oh, he's lost it. He's losing his, he's losing his shit. And this is supposed to last for two weeks. Guards completely ignore the fact that prisoners are bringing up, uh, this is not a real prison. And they would respond with Arnett or respond with st- uh, uh, stuff like, when the prisoners in cell one start behaving properly, your beds will be returned. You can use whatever influence you can on them to make them behave properly. So they're just treating them like, you know, they're not going to act like it's an experiment. They refuse to, to do that. Guard Landry returns uh, with a big fire extinguisher then and, and then starts shooting bursts of uh, skin-chilling carbon dioxide into cell two from cell one, uh, forcing the prisoners to flee backwards. Uh, Arnett formulates this, this kind of divide-and-conquer psychological tactic of making cell three the privileged cell, gives its members special privileges, washing, brushing their teeth, beds and bedding returned, water turned on in their cell. When 107, uh, when 1037, or yeah, 1037 comes out of cell two, his ankles are handcuffed. He's thrown into the closet and he becomes the second, you know, person to be put in the hole. So he's, he's put in a tiny closet, he's got handcuffs on. Uh, 8612 is continue is continuing to yell for the prison superintendent, just, Zimbardo, get your ass over here. Uh, Zimbardo decides not to intervene, but to watch the confrontation uh, and, and the attempt by the other students to restore law and order. Cell three has brought a special meal for being good prisoners. They refuse to eat. This angers the guards. 1037 has been in the hole now for a couple hours. One hour was supposed to be the max that you could be put in there. Uh, That's what they said during orientation. Cell one, the prisoners are so upset, they form an escape plan, a fucking (laughs) escape plan on day two. 5704 has long fingernails uh, from guitar playing. He decides he's going to turn them into screws. 
and he's going to remove the faceplate of the power outlet. And then they're going to then they're going to um, edge take the edge out the plate, turn the screws on the door. One of us is going to pretend to be sick. This is what they're thinking. And when the guard is, is taking him to the toilet, we'll open the main entrance down by the hall. Uh, a signal, we'll signal with the whistle. The other cellmate's going to burst out. They'll knock down the guard and run away to freedom. But as bad luck would have it, guard John Landry, making routine rounds, turns the door ha- handle on cell one, and it falls out uh, to the ground with a resounding thud. Uh, so he realizes they've, they've, they've taken you know part of the door uh, apart. He screams, help, escape. He's screaming, escape. <laughs> the other guards come to the rescue. 4 p.m., the night shift guards come in early. All six guards storm cell one. They again shoot the fire extinguisher. Uh, into the door to uh, opening to keep the prisoners at bay. Then they strip three of the prisoners naked, again with the nudity, take away their beds, threaten to deprive them of dinner if they show any further disobedience. They're already hungry for missing lunch. And so uh, the prisoners melt into, quote, a sullen, quiet blob. <laughs> ah, I'm probably a monster for laughing. This. For the first time, Zimbardo himself interjects. Over the loudspeaker, he announced that the prisoners need to self-select three people to be on the Stanford County Jail Prisoners Grievance Committee. That they'll be able to meet with the superintendent, which is him, uh, as soon as they can agree on their grievances. Uh, they select 5704, 4325, 1037. Their prepared list includes that uh, the guards are being both physically and verbally abusive. They don't like that. There's an unnecessary level of harassment. They don't care for that. The food is not adequate. Uh, they want to have their books, glasses, and various pills and meds returned. <laughs> they took their meds. They want to be, They want there to be more than one visiting night. Some of them want religious services. Uh, they don't say anything here, but I imagine all of them would like some underwear. Uh, behind my silver reflecting sunglasses, I slip into the superintendent role automatically, says Zimbardo. I start out by saying, I am sure we can resolve any disagreements amicably to our mutual satisfaction. I note that this grievance committee is the first step in that direction. Well, 8612 is not buying into the grievance committee, and uh, he's thrown into the hole for insubordination. Back in the closet, you son of a bitch. Uh, 8612 then truly starts to have a meltdown. Uh, Yaffe, uh, can't tell if he's faking it or not. Zimbardo requests that 8612 be brought to his office. He's brought in the two have a discussion. Zimbardo asks him, he says, what seems to be the trouble, young man? And, uh, 8612 says, I can't take it anymore. The guards are hassling me. They're picking on me. They're putting me in the hole all the time. Zimbardo says, well, well, from what I've seen, and I've seen it all, you have brought this all on yourself. You are the most rebellious, insubordinate prisoner in the whole prison. 8612 says, I don't care. You've all violated the contract. I didn't expect to be treated like this. And then he starts to keep going. And then this other fucking research assistant, you know, pretend uh, like prison guy just jumps in and says, stop right there, punk. You can't take what? Push-ups? Jumping jacks? Guards calling you names? Yelling at you? Is that what you mean by hassling? Don't interrupt me. And you're crying about being put in a closet for a few hours? Let me straighten you out, white boy. You wouldn't last a day in San Quentin. We would all smell your fear and weakness. The guards would be banging you upside your head. Therefore, they put you in a real solitary concrete barren pit that I endured for weeks at a time. They'd throw you to us. Snuffy or some other bad gang boss would have brought you for two, maybe three packs, or, or would have bought you for two, maybe three packs of cigarettes. Your ass would be bleeding bread or bright red, white, and blue. And that would just be just the beginning of turning you into a sissy. I fucking, again, this is make-believe. This person yelling at him was not in prison. They were not in San Quentin. This is nonsense. This is a fake guard. What's he talking about? Uh, he, he wouldn't last a day there. Or maybe he, I don't know. Maybe he would. I haven't been there either. I just, I love just the, how committed they are to fantasy. It is, this is fantastic to me. 8612, startled by this treatment. I bet he meekly agrees to continue. He's sent back to the yard. The guards have the others do a count. 8612 is told to join him against the wall. Uh, he then tells Arnett to go fuck himself. So he's, he's still pissed. Other prisoners start to giggle at him. 
And then 8612 punches one of his buddies. He delivers an uppercut to his buddies. Uh, he continues to rant in his high-pitched, whiny voice. I, I couldn't get out. They wouldn't let me out. You, you, can't, you can't get out of here. Uh, and one prisoner asked him, like, you, you mean you couldn't break the contract? Another prisoner inquires desperately, but not to anyone in particular. Can, can I cancel my contract? Arnett toughens up. No talking on the line. 8612 will be around later for you all to talk with. This revelation from one of their respected leaders is a powerful blow to the prisoner's resolve. In defiance, Glenn, or excuse me, a 3401 reports on the impact of 8612's assertion. Uh, later, he was like, he said, you can't get out. You felt like you really were a prisoner. Maybe you really were a prisoner in Zimbardo's experiment. And maybe uh, you were getting paid for it. But damn it, you were a prisoner. Uh, you were really a prisoner. So Zimb- Zimbardo's got him right where he wants him, man. He- he's in their heads. He's making them think they're actually in a real prison. It's brilliant. Uh, the prisoners move into dinner. After just a few minutes eating, the guards take their food away. Uh, tell the prisoners that the full meals are a privilege. 8612 is put into the hole. Cell 1 is being forced to pick birds <laughs> out of the blankets. 8612 is released from the hole. Starts screaming to call his mom, or he wants a lawyer. Uh, he, again, he's going into another meltdown. I love that he wants to call his mom. This, this dude, he's so, he seems so fragile. It did not take very long to break him. Zimbardo decides that 8612 is under true psychological distress and must be released from the experiment. And they call for his girlfriend to come get him. I wonder how long that relationship lasted after he cried like a baby because he'd been fake held in a fake jail for less than two days. Uh, that doesn't sound like a big turn on. <laughs> Craig Haney, uh, you know, <clears throat> one, excuse me, one of the research assistants uh, slash, you know, prison hierarchy or prison guard, uh, you know, staff, reminds 8612 that he could visit student health in the morning because we had arranged for some of its staff to help deal with any such reactions. Shortly after 8612 was terminated, one of the guards overheard the prisoners in cell two discussing a plot in which this prisoner would return the next day with a band of his buddies to trash the prison and liberate the prisoners. It sounded to me like a far-fetched rumor until a guard reported seeing 8612 sneaking around the hallways of the psychology department the next morning. I ordered the guards to capture him and return him to the prison since he had probably been released under false pretenses. Not sick, just tricking us. Now I knew that I had to prepare for an all-out assault on my prison. My prison. Look how quickly these guys have taken it this far. Unreal. And they're trying to capture a student to fucking put him back in fake, a fake jail. Ah, Day three. Monday, August 16th, 1971. On the third day of the experiment, all of the fake prisoners are given real Lisa mattresses and everyone uh, suddenly starts getting along. They start having a great time. Morale shoots to the moon. The fake guards uh, beg the fake prisoners for an old swap rooney so they can lay on those mattresses. No, that doesn't happen. That's not real. But today's Time Suck really is brought to you by Lisa. Lisa is an innovative, direct-to-consumer online mattress brand. It's also socially conscious. Lisa plants one tree for every mattress sold. They donate 1% of each employee's time to volunteer for local causes. They donate tons of mattresses. And they're not just making super comfy mattresses anymore. They're also making very uncomfortable ones. The new mattresses are made out of nails and bees. Wait, what? No, that's ridiculous. No, they're as comfy as ever. And you, you can sleep your ass off on them. I know from personal experience. And they do make other things now. The Lisa pillow, blankets, 100% free of twigs and burrs. This is no Stanford prison blanket. Uh, they make foundations, frames. So try a Lisa mattress in your own home for 100 nights risk-free. Order now. Available in the U.S., U.K., Canada, Germany online. Free shipping. There's 100% American-made mattress ships compressed in a box right to your door. Uh, so, or, or, or try it out in person at the Lisa Dream Gallery in Soho, New York City, or in, or in Virginia Beach, or in over 80 West Elm stores nationwide. And get $125 off and a free pillow. When you go to leesa.com slash timesuck, 
Or to get there, you can just click the sponsor button uh, on the website uh, or on the app, on the TimeSuck website or the TimeSuck app. Very easy. Uh, all right, so back in fake prison. Just checking with fake, fake prison. It's decided that no bathroom breaks are going to be allowed during the night. Prisoners are going to have to, uh, you know, just shit in buckets. You have to piss in buckets, and the buckets won't be cleared until the next morning because they've been naughty. They've been naughty fake prisoners. Two thirty a.m. counts occur. The night shift decides to stay and help just for no reason. They just want to, you know, kind of be there now. Now there are six guards, uh, eight prisoners. New rules are given out. Prisoners must participate in all prison activities. That means counts. Uh, I thought that already was a rule, but I guess they're reinforcing it. Beds are uh, uh, must be made. Personal effects must be neat and orderly. Floors have to be spotless. Prisoners must not move, tamper with, deface walls, ceilings, windows, doors, or any other prison property. I guess they're just kind of reinstating these. Prisoners would never operate cell lighting. All right, the prisoners are forced to repeat these rules over and over. So apparently uh, less, less so new rules, more so just like take the rules seriously. Vandy notices one of the pris- fake prison guards that one, 1037 is not wearing his head stocking. Uh-oh, uh-uh. He's forced to do 15 push-ups. 3401 says he feels sick, and he's forced to do 20, 20 sit-ups to feel better. <laughs> ah, they then take away his pillow for being a crybaby. Oh, my God. 8345 says he can't breathe, and he's waterboarded for 45 minutes by the guards who scream at him, how about now? Can you breathe now? Is, is this helping your breathing, you weak fuck? You wouldn't last a day in Alcatraz, you fucking cry. Fuck you. All right, that never happened. The waterboarding never happened, but it almost feels like it could have with how quickly these college kids, you know, fake guards, have become power trip and sadists. Uh, Zimbardo is obsessing about A612 coming back to attack his prison. He's worried about a college student, a, a fake, a released fake prisoner coming back for real retribution on his fake prison. They are living in an alternate universe now. They've all gone a little mad. Zimbardo decides that he's going to uh, move the whole experiment to the old city jail. It's no longer in use. He's, he's real worried about it. He fills out forms. He's planning on moving that night just after visiting hours. But then the city manager calls and says, absolutely not. <laughs> they do not want the city to be sued if someone gets hurt. I love, I love that he's like, oh, God, we got to get to a real jail. Oh, I got to secure my prisoners. And th- this is the fucking professor. He's obsessed with the idea of, a, of this attack. He brings, in, um, he brings in a fake prisoner, David G., one of his students, to replace 8612 for the sole purpose of gaining information about the attack. He puts in a fucking spy. David G. informs him that there is no attack, but rather that that was just wishful thinking on the part of the prisoners. And then David quickly turns on Zimbardo and sides with the prisoners. He's one of them now. This is getting just weirder and weirder. Zimbardo confiscates a letter from 5704 to his girlfriend. Says when he gets out, he's going to sell his story to the local paper. Uh, he said he's discovered that the Office of Naval Research, the Department of the Defense, is supporting Zimbardo's research. Consequently, uh, Zimbardo has this, uh, he has this conspiracy theory arguing that they're trying to find out how to best imprison student protesters who are opposing the Vietnam War. And Zimbardo's pissed off about this, right? And he, and he doesn't want to share it, doesn't want the guards finding out and turn on him. He's personally offended because he's been actively anti-Vietnam the whole time. He's taking this shit way too seriously. He's fucking paranoid right now. Uh, Zimbardo and Carlo plan on how they will uh, handle the first visitor's night. They're just going to do what all prisons do when unwelcome visitors descend upon them. They're going to they're gonna document uh, uh, abuses, confront the system with demands for improvement. Prison officials, you know, so they are going to have to cover the bloodstains with doilies. This is what they say. Hide the bodies by putting troublemakers out of sight and make the scene pretty. Uh, Carlos stresses that, you know, we must convince these middle-class white parents to believe that the good we are doing with a study, uh, or believe in the good we are doing with a study and like their sons, make them comply with the demands of the authorities. He says, you white folks sure like to conform to the man. So they know they're doing the right thing. Just doing the, like the, doing like everyone else is doing, man, they are into this stocking caps and head towels are stashed away. The warden warns everyone that any complaints will result in permanent or no, uh, premature termination of this visit. 
Day shift guards are asked to stay until 9 uh, p.m. Backup guards are called in. The prisoners are fed their best meal, hot chicken pot pie, seconds of dessert. Gentle music is put on in the yard uh, to get them ready for the parents and visitors. The parents arrive, and then they and then all of a sudden they uh, the the prisoner or the prison people plan to cut the time down so each visitor only gets ten minutes. They have the receptionist tell the parents that the the fake prisoners are still eating, and they shift the blame for the delay uh, onto their loved ones. Uh, the receptionist also tells the visitors that only two visitors per prison are allowed. That's a rule that they just made up. And when they and the, <laughs> the visitors get angry. Uh, they respond with, didn't your, didn't your child or friend tell you about the limit of two visitors uh, when they when they invited you here? So they just shift blame. There's they're manipulating. There's lying. For the most part, the night goes well. The prisoners uh, put on a brave face, pretend that everything's okay. They don't share the abuse they're suffering. Both the parents, friends, and the, pris- uh, uh, and the prisoners are treating this like a real prison, not an experiment. And again, this is day three. This is day three, and these people are acting like they've been in uh, in federal prison for many years. 1037's mother takes Zimbardo aside, tells him that there is a real change in her son, and, and he's very unwell. Zimbardo does not believe her and, and, in fact, uses psychological persuasion to get her husband to turn on her. And then the two guys gang up on her and convince her that she is wrong and that 1037 is fine. What the fuck? You almost feel like Zimbardo needed somebody above him to monitor him during his experiment. You know, right? It feels like if, if we had lived, if, if this had gone on in a country where you could just kind of do whatever you wanted in an experiment, that he would have just taken them out in the woods somewhere and just put them in some fucking compound he built and just monitor them for years just to see how it affected them. Uh, day four, Tuesday, August 17th, 1971. Before we dig into this day, uh, one more sponsor. Uh, support for today's show comes from American Addiction Centers. Sometimes it's hard to ask for help, but it doesn't need to be. Addiction is a nationwide problem that can affect anyone, and there's no easy fix. Recovery isn't one size fits all. And that's why the AAC is revolutionizing the addiction treatment industry with holistic, evidence-based treatment practices. They offer innovative technology to ensure safety throughout detox and treatment, specializing in treating dual diagnosis or co-occurring mental health issues and addiction. They work hard to make sure individual needs are met, empowering individuals in their lifelong recovery journey into a comfortable, home-like setting. Uh, AAC even offers in-house genetic testing, so you can find out if you're prone to any kind of prescription drug sensitivity or interactions, which is genius. This is especially important in the midst of the current opioid uh, epidemic. Uh, If you struggle with drugs or alcohol, or maybe you're not even sure whether or not you have a problem, just call American Addiction Centers, 888-489-5018. It's available 24-7. I'm going to put that in the episode description so you can find that number easily. 888-489-5018. Your life is worth more than your addiction. Don't wait until it's too late. That's right, Time Suckers. If you think it's weird uh, that I'm promoting a pro-weed podcast and a recovery center in the same podcast, uh, that you feel like it's hypocritical, it's not. Some people can have a casual, healthy relationship with alcohol or with uh, marijuana. Uh, I'm one of those people. Uh, some people can't. And if you can't, if it's, if it's a need, not a want, Get help. Don't fuck around. Don't let your pride get in the way. Do it now. No one has a casual relationship, by the way, with long-term opioid use. Uh, So contact the AAC. Addiction is no joke. Hail Nimrod. And now we return back to our fake prison. (laughs) Zimbardo has arranged for a priest to come in and give insights as well as give uh, give him feedback on the level of realism. He's a former Washington, D.C. prison chaplain. His father, McDermott, arrives to meet with everybody. Most prisoners only give him their numbers. Zimbardo reports that Father McDermott himself slips deeply into the role of prison chaplain. He's a, he's a real fake prison chaplain. Apparently, the mock prison has created a very realistic situation that has drawn even this priest in, just as it had the prisoners and the guards and Zimbardo himself. Uh, Father McDermott confides in Zimbardo 
they are all the naive type of prisoner. They don't know anything about prison or what a prison's for. It's typical of the educated people that I see. There are the people you they these are the people you want to try to change the prison system. Tomorrow's leaders and today's voters. And they are the ones who are going to shape community education. They just don't know enough about what prisons are and what they can do to a person. But what you are do, doing here is good. It'll teach them. Man, great insight. Father McDermott. Man, how true. People who are never imprisoned are generally the ones who shape prison policies. What, what a great thing for some of these people to be in prison for a bit. You know, I mean, truly, like really get a taste of what prison's all about. And, uh, you know, and maybe some of them, you know, would be able to shape prison policy later uh, in a much better way. I never thought of that angle. Uh, Father McDermott talks to 819. 819's looking very unwell. In, in a fit of rage that morning, he had destroyed his bedding, ended up in the hole, fucking thrown in the closet. Uh, the other prisoners told the guards he was depressed because his family didn't want to help him. He felt they didn't care about his plight uh, at the previous night's visiting hours. Father McDermott has, like, uh, asked him, he says, I-, I wonder if you discussed the idea that your family might get a lawyer for you. He says, they knew I was a prisoner. I told them what I was doing here about the numbers, the regulations, the hassles. Father McDermott's like, well, how, how do you feel now? I have, a, I have a bad headache. I need a doctor. Then he just breaks down and starts to cry. And then he starts to just sob. Big tears, big sighs. Priest calmly gives him his handkerchief, wipes his tears away. This is a grown-ass grown man. Uh, now there, can't be all that bad. How long have you been in this place? And 819 says, only three days. And the priest says, uh, and I'm sure he did a huge internal eye roll. He's like, you're, you're going to have to be less emotional. Man, I, I, I get it, though. I get why he's so upset, though, on some level. I spent one night in jail uh, after a DUI back in 2010. Uh, yeah, uh, just, just uh, not having access to my, to my iPhone for about 10 hours, and they wouldn't let me sleep. Uh, it was starting to drive me mad. Out of boredom. I was just so fucking bored. No book, no TV, no phone, no access to anything. It's by myself in a, in a cell with no one to even talk to. And this was less than half a day, and it was starting to get to me. I was counting the minutes so I could get out of there. You know, not having the freedom you're used to is a terrible thing. I'll, I'll, I'll never understand re-offenders who keep getting themselves thrown back in prison. You know, after you've been there for years, wouldn't you do everything you possibly could to make sure you don't go back? I don't know. Apparently not, though, uh, with, with recidivism rates. I know it's more complicated than I'm laying out there. Uh, after, after checking in with the fake prisoners, the real priest leaves. Zimbardo is walking him out. He asked if he would uh, really contact families as he told the prisoners he would. And uh, the, fake, the father of says, yep, of course. And then he leaves. And Zimbardo's confused. Because he, he knows that the priest is aware that this is not a real prison. These are not real prisoners, but he's, but he's acting as if it is. Uh, after the priest leaves, 819 is put in the hole. The rest are forced to do counts uh, where they sing their numbers to different tunes now. It's for the guards' amusement. They're given many punishments, are told it's due to 819, or 819 destroying his bedding that morning. Zimbardo goes to the hole and finds 819 hunched over into a quivering mass, hysterical in the closet. He tells 819 that he gets to leave, that the study is done for him. So he's, this, another one has been broken. Another student's been broken in the hole. At first, 819 refuses to leave, saying, no, I can't leave. I have to go back in there. He finally agrees when Zimbardo says, listen carefully to me. You're not 819. You are Stuart. My name is Dr. Zimbardo. I'm a psychologist, not a prison superintendent. This is not a real prison. This is just an experiment. Those guys are just students like you. So go home, Stuart. Come with me now. Let's go. And after this, Stuart just starts sobbing. He wipes away his tears, straightens up, looks into Zimbardo's eyes. Zimbardo said he looked like a small child waking up for a nightmare. He's assured, you know, by his parent now that, it, that there's, not a, there's no real monsters. Everything's okay. And then he finally accepts the truth. He's like, uh, and then, you know, he sees it's okay. And, and Zimbardo's like, okay, Stu, let's go. So, you know, uh, fourth day and two volunteers have been completely shattered. After 819 leaves, they bring in a backup prisoner, another one, 416. He arrives just as guard Arnett is dictating a letter for the next visitor's night. He's telling the prisoners what they need to write to their <laughs> families. 
He tells him to write, Dear Mother, I have been having a marvelous time. The food is great, and there's always lots of fun and games. <laughs> the officers have treated me very well. They are swell guys. You would like them, Mother. No need to visit. It's seventh heaven. You put, and he goes, and put the name there that your mother gave you, whatever that may be. Yours truly, your loving son. Oh, man. Uh, guard Arnett, he takes an immediate disliking to the new prisoner, 416. Uh, he's going to have to break him. Fresh meat, fresh meat in the prison. Dinner time rolls around. Hellman brings in some sausages. 416 refuses to eat the new prisoner. And uh, he says he's going on a hunger strike. He just got there. He just got there, you son of a bitch. Why, why are you hungry? Apparently, he really wanted to do a hunger, hunger strike. Hellman says, you don't want to eat two stinking sausages? You want me to take these sausages and cram them up your ass? Is that what you want? You want me to take them and cram them up your ass? This is a quote. They throw 416 in the hole. They tell all the other prisoners that until 416 eats the sausages, they're all going to be punished. This is madness. Visitor's night is going to be canceled until he eats the sausages. They, they force the prisoners to talk through the door of the hole and try to convince 416 to eat. They all, <laughs> they all turn on him. Oh, oh my gosh. As, as a punishment for 416 and general insubordination, Hellman forces the prisoners to play leapfrog. Seriously, this isn't some of my silly bullshit. Force them to play a game, but they're having difficulties with the game because their shower clogs are falling off and their smocks are creeping up to expose their fucking cock and balls and their butts as they jump over the bent bo- bodies of their fellow uh, fake inmates. And I'm sure that's why the guards made them do it. But then it apparently starts to make some of the guards uncomfortable. Eventually, Hellman simplifies the game by only having two of them play, which is so, so weird to me. He has 2093 and 5704 play half-naked leapfrog. And then he yells at him, that's the way dogs do it, isn't it? Isn't that the way dogs do it? He's already, ain't he, standing behind you, doggy style. Why don't you make like a dog? <laughs> wow. Again, that's a quote. Uh, man, if this was not homoerotic before, it is definitely now. I feel like they've crossed a new line with this. Feel, it feels like a borderline sexual abuse at this point. Hellman orders 416 to, out of the hole to do push-ups. He stands by 416 who's lying on the ground in a push-up position, orders him to do slow push-ups, and then he puts his foot on the top of his back, and as he goes down, he just kind of stomps him back into the floor. The others uh, all seem to be surprised at this physical abuse. Yeah, not supposed to do this. After a couple of push-ups, this tough guy guard lifts his foot off the prisoner's back, orders him back into the hole, and uh, locks him back in there. Man, day five, Wednesday, August 18th, 1971. Wednesday morning kicks off with parole board hearings. There's four prisoners uh, up for parole, 4325, 3401, 1037, and 7258. They all plead their case as if it's a real hearing. And uh, all of them agree that they would give up their money right now to leave. How insane is that? Five days. And, and every single prisoner, volunteer, agrees that they will forfeit the money for the experiment if they can just leave, if they can just be fake released from a fake prison. <laughs> The board was made up of random secretaries from the department. Christina Maslach was about to uh, start teaching a position at Berkeley and Dayton Zimbardo. Uh, and it was headed by Carlo. He turned into the most authoritative asshole during the hearings and the person he hated the most during his 16 years uh, behind bars. Oh, sorry. So I guess, you know, earlier that one guy talking about San Quentin, I was wrong. He actually was. There was one person, sorry, that was uh, had actually spent real time in prison. So that makes more sense. Uh, funnier to me if he wasn't, though. But okay, so one of these people had actually been in prison that was involved in this experiment. The rest of the day, uh, five, carries on with much of the same. Humiliating counts, forced punishment, 416 is hunger strike. Nothing else, a special note happens this day. Day six, Thursday, August 18th, 1971, 2.30 a.m. Counts are done with billy clubs and whistles. Guard Saros decides he doesn't need to be, uh, uh, he, or he decides he needs to be more military, military militaristic. Uh, the, the inmates are forced to strip, strip their beds, 
uh, sorry, strip their beds, not strip naked. Remake them over and over. This pushes 5704 to his breaking point. He mouths off to Ceros, is thrown into the hole. Man, they love throwing people in the hole. But he takes a swing at him, tries to punch Ceros after getting out of the hole. 5704 is chained to his bed, actually chained. The rest of the prisoners are forced to do 75 push-ups. 416 says he wants to quit. The other prisoners tell him this is not an option. He continues his hunger, hunger strike. And I guess he was really skinny when he came, just a really skinny dude. And so uh, he's super, super thin when he shows up for the experiment. He thinks he's going to collapse after about 12 more hours. And then he's going to have to be taken to the hospital. Prisoner 1037 is so listless and broke, broken that Zimbardo approves his parole. This is three kids now that have been broken. He leaves the study. Uh, the other two are not paroled at this time. Father McDermott calls prisoner 72518 about getting him a lawyer. He calls Zimbardo, agrees to come in the next day and talk to all the prisoners. Jeez, they got a fucking real lawyer coming in now. Talk to fake prisoners about how to get out of a fake prison. The fake prisoners are completely fractured. They're all turning on 416 for his hunger strike. They're mad at 5704 for the punishments they have to do, you know, because he's not cooperating. Uh, they do the last toilet run of the day, 10 p.m. Uh, Christina, the recent social psychology PhD grad, Zimbardo's, uh, this is Maslach, uh, Zimbardo's girlfriend and future wife, witnesses this part of the experiment for the first time. When these, when these uh, uh, students walk past her with bags on their heads, they're chained together, and she's fucking horrified. It's like, you know, Ivy League, Abu Ghraib, you know, however you say that, in under a week. Uh, she gets in. I, I, by the way, I did try to look up the pronunciation on Abu Abu Grab or whatever, and it, they say it with such an accent that I was just like, "Fuck it." Uh, she gets into the into an argument with Zimbardo, Yaffe Banks. They're questioning how she could even be a psychologist. She can't deal with this. She yells at the three of them, "What are you doing? What you're doing to these boys is a terrible thing." She storms out, and this kind of wakes Zimbardo up, wakes him up out of the strange dream he created for himself. Past midnight, he decides he's going to end the study the next day. Shit has gotten way out of hand. After the lawyer comes, he, he's he's done with the, done with the experiment. Final day, Friday, August 20th, 1971. Uh, a count starts at 1 a.m. There's only five remaining prisoners, 416-2093-5486-5704-7258. Hellman lines them up against the wall to recite their numbers, rules, and songs. Uh, no matter how well they do their chores, someone just keeps getting punished. They just keep getting yelled at, cursed at, made to say abusive things to each other. He'll yell, he'll, like, he'll yell at one prisoner, just like, tell him he's a prick. And then, you know, make that prisoner, tell it to the next prisoner. They, then the sexual harassment that starts to bubble up last night resumes as the testosterone's flowing freely in every direction. He says, see that hole in the ground? Do 25 push-ups. Fuck that hole. Okay, now pay attention. You three are going to be female camels. Get over here. Bend over. Touch your hands to the floor. And they do, and their naked butts are exposed since they're not wearing underwear beneath their smock dresses. And then Hellman continues saying, now you two, you're the male camels. Stand behind the female camels and hump them. Yeah, that, that happened. Holy shit, there will be lawsuits for that today. For the first time in a week, the prisoners have been allowed to sleep for nearly six unbroken hours. That's the only good thing that's happened to them recently. 7.05 a.m., count lasts only 10 minutes. After all the fake camel humping, all that stuff, they've been, numbers are called out. Other innocuous rituals are observed. 416, still not eaten. He's put back into his self. He's forced to make love now to his dinner sausages. He's forced to, quote, make love to his dinner sausages. Ceros orders him to caress them, to hug them, and to kiss them. You know, basically like perform fellatio on him. And, and, and he does all that. 416 does all that. Yet he uh, refuses to, sing, to, to eat. He won't eat a single bite. Man, the, the homoerotic level of this study, it's code red right now. I feel, good thing they shut this down. I feel like this was like days away from like a fucking rape happening. Uh, the public defender comes to talk to all the prisoners, gives them general advice, treats them as if they were real, uh, does not acknowledge that he knows 7258, uh, let alone that they're cousins. Okay, so he's, the, he's this one student's cousin. He's a lawyer. Uh, 7258 loses it. He yells at his, his cousin defender. He says, you can't go away and leave us here. We want to leave now. We want to leave now with you. We can't stand another week or even weekend. I thought you were going to arrange for me for us to be bailed out. Please. 
After the defender leaves, Zimbardo addresses the group. I have something important to tell you, so please listen carefully. The experiment is over. You are free to leave today. And there's no immediate reaction. No change in facial expression. No change in body language. He just senses they're confused, skeptical, and maybe even suspicious. Like this is just another part of the test. So he continues slowly and clearly. I and the rest of the research staff have decided to terminate the experiment as of this moment. The study is officially over. The Stanford County Jail is closed. We thank you all for your important role in this study. And then cheers break out. Fucking hugs, slaps in the back, wide smiles. <laughs> Euphoria is, uh, you know, uh, reverberating in Jordan Hall. Next, Zimbardo felt it was important to make it clear to both the prisoners and the guards that any extreme behavior they displayed was diagnostic of the power of the situation and not diagnostic of any personal pathology within them. They had to be reminded that they all had been chosen precisely because they were normal and healthy to begin with. Right? They had, they had, they had not brought any kind of personal defects into the prison setting. I don't know. That one, that one Hellman seems like he might have brought some shit. <laughs> the setting had been brought out to the extremes in them. Uh, that they'd all witnessed. Everyone who participated was brought in for exit interviews. They were, they were all talked to for a few hours and they're released. Uh, they meet back up in a few weeks. They would talk it all over again. And, and that takes us out of this time suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. So how, how much did this less than a week long study fuck these people up? Zimbardo would claim years after its conclusion that there was no lasting damage to anyone who participated in the study and that he was still in contact with the students. They all, they all went back to their lives as soon as it ended. Sadly, the experiment, while often cited as an important study, did, did not actually bring about any real prison reform, uh, with the possible exception the, uh, of not, no longer having juveniles in certain places uh, you know, housed with adult uh, prisoners. Some people say that it had a little bit to do with that reform. So, so what did the Zimbardo and, and, and later researchers really learn from the study? Let's dig into that after we check in and see what the idiots of the internet have learned first. Idiots of the internet. internet. For today, I found a YouTube video called Simply Stanford Prison Experiment, posted by Joe Taylor, October 29, 2013. Highly recommend watching it, actually. It features both an interview with Zimbardo, uh, you know, years and years after the experiment about what he thought about, you know, the experiment. And, and it also uh, has some archival footage from the experiment itself, and it's just over eight minutes long. Uh, user Etna Okana posts a strange observation after watching this video. She writes, psychology does not have a place in research. Research has become an industry which has caused more harm than good. Uh, what? Do you, uh, do you, do you really believe that? That's so confused. No psychology research should be done? Or are you saying that no research in general should be done? Uh, both are stupid. Just trying to figure out how stupid you are. Like, like, sounds like you're kind of saying both. So what? So no more curing diseases? No more tech advancements? Is that research bad? Uh, no more progress in basically anything, you know, because uh, uh, research is, is the main way you, you make progress. That's like saying education is bad. Uh, just, you know, that it does more harm than good, which you probably also believe because you don't appear, uh, appear to have had a lot of education if you really believe what you posted there. Uh, the following exchange is funny to me. Dumb against dumb. Dumb versus dumb. In this corner. Dumb. In the other corner. More dumb. It's a dumb fight. User Christopher Jarrett posts, all the prisoners that broke down are a bunch of pussies. All you who say this is cruel are bleeding heart, heart pussies too. And then user Al Diablo posts, say that to Satan when you enter the depth of hell. What? It, wow. Easy, Diablo. Uh, look, I think Christopher sounds like a dummy too, but uh, but not, not sure people can send to hell uh, for thinking that other people are weak. Not sure that happens in any religion. 
Uh, seems like a, like a bit of an overreaction. It feels like you don't know how to uh, do like, you know, insults properly. Uh, it's, it's, you got, you got to build towards certain insults, right? You're not supposed to immediately tell people they're going to burn in hell. That's a, you work towards that one. Like, you, you know, you should probably start with something like, I feel like I have to give you a tutorial on how to fucking insult people and, and get and argue with people. You start with something like that's ridiculous, dude. You know, you wouldn't be talking so tough if you'd actually been there. And then when they come back with something like, shut the fuck up, pussy, what do you know? Then you say something like, you know what? Go fuck yourself. You idiot. And then when they come back with, I'll fucking kill you and your family if I see you in real life, bitch. And there's something like that. That's when you say, say that to Satan when you enter depth of hell, which is still weird because of the phrasing is strange, but at least it feels like it's coming from an emotional place, like a genuine emotional place. You got you to gotta get, get you in enrolled in some kind of insult class. Uh, you're not doing it right. A uh, user just call me Mookie posts the following a few pages down, says, these kids are soft as hell. Try pledging a fraternity, which I think is kind of funny. But you know who doesn't think it's funny? Old Al Diablo. Uh-huh. He's back. He's back in the comments. Uh, he posts a reply of, holy fuck, you are a faggot. Jesus, Al Diablo. We just fucking talked about this. Way too hot. You came in way too hot. That's, that's not when you say that. You scream that in the middle of a, of a giant packed gay bar full of a lot of bears who are really into leather play. And you, and you scream it right before last call after asking someone to film you. And then before you bleed out after a vicious deserved beatdown, uh, you use your dying words to ask your friend to send me that video so I can play it on the show. I don't know. Maybe I'm today's idiot of the internet. Idiots of the internet. Okay, so back to the study. What did Zimbardo learn from all of this? Well, uh, the experiments uh, results favor situational attribution of behavior over dispositional attribution, a result caused by internal characteristics. It seemed that the situation, rather than the individual personalities, caused the participants' behavior. And if you remember way back, that's the opposite of what he expected. He, he thought individual personalities would influence you know, how they behaved in their roles. And then by the end of the experiment, he felt the opposite was true. Using this interpretation, the results are compatible with those of Stanley Milgram, right? That one I, that one I mentioned earlier, uh, where random participants complied with orders to administer seemingly lethal uh, electric shocks to some, uh, you know, shill, some, uh, some actor. Basically, put in the right situation, people will do things they never thought themselves capable of doing, which does explain how things like the Holocaust can happen, which is why we need to make sure we don't allow certain situations to occur again, because they will for sure bring out the worst in humanity. Right? The experiment has also been used to illustrate cognitive dissonance theory and the power of authority. Uh, in a theory of cognitive dissonance, it's a 1957, this Leon Fessinger, uh, he proposed that human beings strive for internal psychological consistency in order to mentally function in the real world. A person who experiences internal inconsistency tends to become psychologically uncomfortable and is motivated to reduce their cognitive dissonance, defined as the state of having inconsistent thoughts, beliefs, or attitudes especially as relating to behavioral decisions and attitude change. And this is done by making changes to justify their stressful behavior, either by adding new parts to the cognition, causing the psychological distance, or by actively avoiding social situations and or contradictory information likely to increase the magnitude of the cognitive distance. In the case of the prison experiment, student guards probably were torn between the moral qualms, and this is my speculation, between the moral qualms they had regarding abusing other students and the perceived expectations of what it meant to be a good prison guard. And they ended up justifying doing horrible things in the name of just doing their job, right? They're just doing their prison guard job. The whole, I'm just following orders phenomena, right? Even though uh, no one told them to abuse the prisoners like they did, they did because, you know, 
That's what they expected. Uh, they thought was expected of that role. Uh, was this study ethical to conduct? Uh, no, no, probably not. Uh, but we did gain a lot of insight into human behavior from it. And it is fascinating to me. This kind of stuff was always my favorite thing to study when I was in school. I hope you found it interesting today as I did. Now let's go over it one more time with today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, the Stanford prison experiment was supposed to last two weeks, but it didn't even last one because even fake incarceration can actually break people down. Another reminder to keep your shit together so you don't end up in real prison. Number two, the fake guards started really physically abusing and degrading the fake prisoners on day one. On day one. Makes you wonder what has gone on in real prisons. Uh, Any time suckers out there who spend time in real prison, if you have some insight for us you'd like to share, any horror stories you feel comfortable sharing, uh, send them in. Uh, Number three, Stanford psychology professor Philip Zimbardo turned the basement of Jordan Hall, the headquarters of the Department of Psychology at Stanford University, into a fake prison. How fun would it have been to be a psychology professor in 1971? Uh, Sounds kind of awesome. Number four, basically put in the right situation. People will do things they never thought themselves morally capable of doing. So be careful when it comes to the situations you put yourself in. Number five, new info. The Stanford prison experiment changed the way psychological studies could be done in the U.S. Since the time of the Stanford experiment, ethical guidelines have been established for experiments involving human subjects. The Stanford prison experiment led to the implementation of rules to preclude any harmful treatment of participants. Before they are implemented, human studies must now be reviewed and founded by an institutional review board or ethics committee to be in accordance with ethical guidelines set by the American Psychological Association. These guidelines involve consideration of whether the potential benefit for science outweighs the possible risk for physical and psychological harm. So no more fake prisons. Good thing I never went into uh, experimental psychology. Sounds, sounds like it's kind of boring now. Time suck. Top five takeaways. All right. Philip Zimbardo's Stanford prison experiment has been sucked. So much fake prison sucking this week. My fake jaw is fake sore. Uh, stickers. Time suck stickers should be in the store this week. That's what I'm hearing, including some new vinyl car decals. Uh, may Nimrod bless this important shipment. Uh, so hopefully you check the store. Thanks to Harmony Velikamp, Jesse Dobner, Lindsey Cummins, Josh Krell, entire Time Suck team for their help. Huge thanks to new Bojangles research team member, longtime Time Sucker Heather Ryman for giving me some top shelf Stanford research to dive in with today. Uh, next Monday, we go full idiots of the internet with the Westboro Baptist Church. Those morons who pr- protest everything in the name of God, uh, a God they clearly don't understand. They've protested everything from Lady Gaga to military funerals such as the funeral of Marine Lance Corporal Matthew Snyder, who was killed in Iraq in the line of duty. The picketers peacefully displayed their signs, uh, saying stuff like, thank God for dead soldiers and fags doom nations. America is doomed. Priests rape boys. You're going to hell for about 30 minutes before the funeral began at 1,000 feet away. Why are they so dumb and so angry? How do they justify their hate in the name of religion? Join me in mercilessly mocking these anti-suckers next week. I'm going to go off. I'm going to fucking go off the rails, I promise. And now, let's find out what you suckers have been up to with this week's Time Sucker Updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker Updates. More gun updates this week. So many amazing insights have been pouring in. Time Sucker Angela Bernson provides today's first one. Angela writes, Stop listening to the podcast because of your gun stance, you motherfucking moron. Stick your hunting rifle up your ignorant ass. Keep pulling the trigger until you blow your dick off. 
Well, thanks, Angela. Uh, you bring up a lot of good points. Uh, I love when people write in, and suddenly I'm able to look at a, a subject in a, in a whole new way. Uh, I'm kidding. That is not what Angela wrote. That is not at all what she wrote. Here's the real message. I'm a little behind on listening to the suck, but I heard your explanation on your rant of gun violence. I'm a teacher at a public school in Texas. Just this week, because of the Parkland shooting and other terrorist threats to the school, we are implementing new safety procedures. They are doing random backpack searches, uh, and the drugs, guns, and alcohol, and aspirin dogs will be here every week. P.S. If Bojangles were the dog, we'd never have a problem again. Praise Nimrod. Oh, I love that. You're damn right, Angela. Praise Bojangles. Oh, one-eyed, three-legged savior of the suck. Wish we could drop that one-eyed, three-legged American crime fighter into our schools. Straighten shit out. Back to, back to your message, though. Next year, the students uh, will have to use clear backpacks. Even the elementary school students will have to, have to use the clear backpacks for safety. We've, we also have to have every single door inside the building locked. The outside doors were already locked, but now classroom doors will be locked at all times. They're even building a wall around the school. Can you tell we're from a small town in Texas? Anyway, we just implemented these new policies due to gun violence in schools. Also, there is no way that arming teachers is going to make me feel safer. Thanks for sucking and caring about us, Space Lizards, so much. Oh, I do love you, Space Lizards, a little extra. I hope that you're nourished, nurtured, and carried by Nimrod's glorious nutsack. Thank you, Angela. You know, I am sitting in uh, Nimrod's sack right now. I climb in from time to time to rejuvenate. Uh, it's tricky. I have, to sh- I have to shimmy down the pea shaft to get in, but it's, it's worth it once you're there. Uh, no, but I am doing, I am doing well. I've uh, been staying up a lot this week, but I've been getting ahead on some episodes so I can have a little vacay this coming week, and uh, I'm, I'm ready. I need to rest my mind a bit. I uh, love all the adjustments your school is making, man. Uh, clear, clear backpacks. I think that's a simple but brilliant addition to making school safer. And, and as much as, you know, I think in moments that arming teachers would, be, would help the problem, I, I know that's not the answer because teachers don't sign up to be teachers to serve and protect with a firearm. There's a reason they wanted to become teachers and not private security guards or police officers. Uh, uh, but thank you for those insights. Really, really good. Adding to, adding to this discussion of education and guns is time sucker Tiffany Baining. Who says, oh, hi, master of suck. I appreciate the recent gun episode. I am with you in many of these topics. I am all for owning personal handguns and shotguns. I believe they are sufficient for hunting and protecting your family. I stand up for hobby ranges for people who enjoy shooting other types of weapons. Support local small businesses, yada, yada, yada. The only thing I think people are really missing is what many of these kids are really saying. They are tired of our lawmakers and others saying there's nothing we can do. Yes, there is. We can invest more money in our public schools to hire resource officers and counselors who specialize in youth mental health. Invest in your teachers. Give them the tools they need to press for student success. Teachers who want to teach are going to inspire students to become better people. These options don't involve banning anything, but does involve money, in which, probably is pro- which is probably why lawmakers ignore them. That smart gun stuff blew my mind. I had never considered that, but absolutely love that solution. This is such a great solution. I know this is a little scatterbrained, but thanks for all the info from the episode. I learned a lot, and I'm glad you worked hard not to make this a non-biased or, or, or to make this, excuse me, uh, a non-biased episode. Both sides have pros and cons, and it is important to see it from both angles. Blessings to Nimrod, Bojangles, and the Suckmaster. This podcast is most excellent. Thanks, Tiffany Bainey. Thanks, Tiffany. God, you guys make me feel good. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Mental health assessment. Counseling for those who need it. Very important when it comes to this issue. You know, I've, I've kind of shit on counseling in the past. I might stand up a little bit because I... I, I was I did not have the best psychology professors. <laughs> it kind of tainted my view of the of the entire field. But I'm you know as I get older, I'm fucking softening, and I realize yeah we we got to get over the stigma of, of mental health stuff. We 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 got to give people better screenings and help when they're younger. You know so you know uh, what if we would have caught some of these uh, school shooters you know at an early age and realized they had some issues that needed to be worked on and, and got them the help they needed. 
I mean, I'm not saying it's going to fix everything, but it's definitely going to help. Very, very important piece of the puzzle. Uh, next up, Time Sucker Mark Fossbinder with the correction. Mark writes, you cannot buy live 40 millimeter explosive grenades. Your obsession is, <laughs> is interesting, though. I'm sure you can find one to rent. If you can't, I'll try to point you in the right direction. <laughs> Damn it. Ah, all right, Mark. I did I did more digging because your email, and I realized that live grenades are, in fact, much harder to obtain legally than I, I thought. They're very hard to obtain, very hard to fire once you do obtain them. Ton of paperwork, including notifying the ATF when and where you're going to use them, and then basically you got you to let them know how it went. Uh, essentially, it appears that they're legal in, in, in kind of theory only almost, Like, uh, but there's so much red tape you have to cut through. You, you practically need a law degree. Uh, just to have a snowball's chance in hell of actually legally obtaining and firing a highly explosive device out of out of the under the barrel grenade launcher on your on your rifle, which I gotta say is probably the best. It's probably for the best. I don't think I personally have the proper psychological makeup to use one. I don't trust myself. I feel like if I had a grenade launcher, I would just go out in the woods. I would blow up so much shit. Honestly, I would. I would. I would just go if I oh if I had some acreage just to fucking rain terror upon. I would just drop like a hundred grenades into some woodland setting and just turn it into a post-apocalyptic nightmare landscape. I, I, I don't know. I know that's not good. I don't know why that sounds so awesome to me, but it does. Again, I'm the, I'm the kind of person, I mean, the Punisher is my favorite comic book character. So I'm, I'm not sure what's going on with my psychology. Uh, th- thanks for straightening me out on that. Okay, two more. Next up, uh, Brian, time sucker Casey, uh, who's a little heated by the, the episode and, and I like it. He says, uh, writes in saying, I normally am pretty even killed when it comes to topics but couldn't help but get heated when it comes to the gun episode. I know you're trying to state that mass murders are not uncommon without an AR and referenced the uh, Saga Mihara stabbings. I feel you skewed this to fit your narrative by leaving out that those uh, that they were murdered uh, while they were sleeping. Vastly different than people being slain by metal projectiles while running away. That is a good point, Brian. That is a good point. Uh, the crimes are very different. I was, I was looking through a lot of information. I missed some stuff, including the, the, the sleeping part. Uh, I wasn't trying to force a narrative. I, I was just trying to raise new angles to kick off more discussions. And I do still stand by that part. I was just trying to drive the point home that there's more to the issue than, than, you know, than just guns. There there's, I mean, and you, cause you're right. Guns are far more destructive than knives and much more effective when you're trying to kill a lot of people in a short amount of time. Obviously I, I just wanted to shift the focus beyond guns and onto the people pulling the trigger. And I, and I do appreciate your views on the subject. Uh, I'm glad you got heated. We need to get heated about this, right? That's how that's how change occurs. Uh, when people get mad, people get riled up. So thanks, thanks, dude. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate you sending that in. Uh, last one from Time Sucker Jake Manbeck says, uh, "Dear Lord Suckington Sucksworth Esquire, go you and go Time Suck." The gun control episode was great, and even though I agreed with your libertarian stance on them from the start, uh, I feel that you did a pretty good job of covering both sides of the debate. I, I agree that education is extremely important here for voters, but especially for politicians. If you want an example of a senator who has no idea what he's talking about, look up 30 caliber magazine clip on YouTube. That's a speech from a fucking lawmaker. Just as you discover doing your research for the transgender debate, actually taking the time to get to know the subject firsthand can completely change one's mind. I recently took my friend from the fire to a firing range for the first time. He is a homosexual Democrat from Pittsburgh. So suffice to say, he arrived with his own uh, views on gun enthusiasts. He was not pro. He was completely taken back by the safety culture. And professionalism, everyone shared at the range. Now he gets super poopy pants whenever he can't go. Anyway, please keep doing what you do. You're not afraid to tackle the difficult issues. I respect the hell out of that. I'm not a space yet, but that will change shortly. Bojangles, be praised. Good day, Jake. Space Newt. Uh, thanks, Jake, you Space Newt. Uh, love that you showed someone what a proper gun control and respect for firearms looks like. Totally agree about politicians, man. They need to know the issues better than anybody. 
And more than that, they need to properly demonstrate the knowledge and say the right thing to the public as opposed to the thing that they think will get them the most votes. But because they do have to get votes to get elected, that the nature of their position makes them inherently untrustworthy. It's an inherent conflict of interest. Not saying all politicians are bad. I am saying we need to always keep an eye on all of our politicians because of the angle of, you know, popularity required to get into their job. You know, we've got to keep an eye on them on both sides of the aisle. Otherwise, we've just allowed uh, ourselves to be exploited. No politicians above criticism. Second guessing, not Obama, not Trump, not anyone. Thank you for the updates, everybody. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. All right, that's all this week, unless you are a space lizard. If you are, then you got that Detroit swap cast that I did back uh, with James and Jimmy uh, coming up on Thursday. Have a great week. Don't fake arrest anybody. Don't put anybody in a fake prison or, or a fake hole. And keep on sucking.